you would, take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, we're concluding this paragraph that we've been looking at, this great, uh, these great three verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. Very, maybe not memorized by many, but they're known by everyone, I think, in the church, if you've been around for any amount of time. When you hear them, you recognize them. But before we get into the specific text for today, I just want to read the whole paragraph, starting in Romans 5, 1 through 11, so we can gain the traction of the argument of Paul. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now been reconciled. This morning we're focusing on the final verses in this passage where we are being assured that our hope rightly rests in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because he has justified us. He is sanctifying us. Through this life of suffering. And he will ultimately bring us through the judgment of God. Because he has reconciled us to the Father. And made us the Father's very own children. This is a mouthful. (laughs) To say that, not only is it a long sentence. But it's a mouthful of theology. It's a lot. It's dense, it's packed, and we've been unpacking it for weeks now. And tonight, today, we hope to culminate with a celebration of our reconciliation in Christ. The first thing we see in this passage is that we have been justified by the death of Christ, and even more than that, we will be saved from the judgment day wrath of God by Christ. Verse 9 moves forward in the logic of Paul's argument by connecting with a payment that was paid for sinners to be forgiven and saved. In verse 9, notice he says, Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. We often focus on the fact that salvation is free. Salvation is free, and it's absolutely free to all who believe in Jesus Christ. 
But don't ever be confused with the fact that it's free. Don't ever confuse that fact with a statement like, it's cheap. Salvation is free to us, but it is far from cheap. Salvation is the costliest gift ever given to anyone because it was purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Son of God. When Paul says that we Christians have been justified by His blood, he's telling us that our standing before God the Father has been purchased by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Don't get into this a little bit hokey theology about blood and all this kind of thing. That word simply is a sacrificial term that means Jesus died for us. His life was for us and His death is for us. Behind the statement of this passage is the Levitical sacrificial system of the Jews that's given to us. And they had observed it for millennia. Jesus Christ now fulfills the Levitical priesthood. Why? Because he's not only a priest in the order of Melchizedek, but he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Leviticus is a book in the Old Testament filled with blood. You might see the pages of Leviticus as kind of separated from you and hard to understand. Let me just sum it up. If, if, it was, if we could literally see it as it is, the pages of Leviticus drip with blood because the cost of our sin is death. Why would God put a whole book in the Bible about sacrifice? Well, because he was showing us in foreshadowed form the great sacrifice that would come. Behind this verse, in verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, stands a theology of sacrifice for thousands of years. Thousands and thousands of years, men had brought their sacrifices to the, to the priests of God. And the priests of God had taken those innocent animals and had slain them in front of the people, so that all might see the cost of sin. In a world full of people belittling sin as if it's just a mere trifling thing of mistakes, and, oh, I could just, I'm trying hard, and I'm battling with it, God says it's death. Hear this. If you are living in sin, if you are outside of Jesus Christ, you are a dead man walking. Jesus Christ fulfills that sacrificial system not by causing something else to die, but by giving himself over to death, shedding his own blood. The priests for thousands of years had taken these animals, bulls, sheep, and goats, and offered them, but the Bible tells us they could not be the full payment for the sins. There was a need for a perfect sacrifice. And Paul tells us, that we have this justification, this standing before God by the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul's saying that all of these sacrifices point forward to the fact that Jesus would give His life as a sacrifice to make us righteous before God. Not just forgiven, but righteous. You know, it dawned on me this week as I'm studying this, that behind this passage, so simple, is the idea that Jesus actively obeyed the will of the Father for his entire life. 33 years of perfect 
obedience and submission to the Father. Every time Jesus did what his mom told him to do, it was you, Christian, doing what your mother tells you to do. Every time his dad asked him a question and he told the truth, it was you telling the truth, Christian. Every time that he went into a room and he saw the sins of the people, what he was seeing is their need for a Savior. And he was giving his life as a sacrifice every moment of every day that he ever drew breath on this planet. His obedience is our obedience. You have been justified by the life and death of your Savior, Paul says. His obedience is your obedience. It's not just that God said, okay, I'll forgive their sin. It's that he said, I'll give them my righteousness. That's the gospel. Jesus obeyed the will of the Father his entire life, and then his righteous life was counted as our very own righteousness. And then Jesus went to the cross to bear our sin before the Father and died so that his blood became our payment to the Father to give us standing in the presence of God. It's no legal fiction, Christianity. That's what the world charged it with. It's like, it's a, it's a bait and switch. Oh, you owe me. You're a sinner, God says in their minds. But, okay, I'll let you go, and I'll just kill my son instead. No. No, from before the foundation of the world, before any of us existed, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, covenanted to, together to display their love, shed it abroad on the world in one main act, and that's the act of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave, his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. This is the love the Father has for us. Shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit is that Jesus is our righteousness. He lived and died that we might be the righteousness of God. But he doesn't stop with the past work of Christ in verse 9. He goes on. He goes on. Look what it says in verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. What Paul does here is a rhetorical and logical technique of arguing from the greatest to the least. Okay? He does it a lot in his letters. We might overlook it, not really see it. But basically what he's saying is if God did this massive thing, by making Christ your righteousness through his life and death. If God did this massive thing, then surely this is inevitable that he will save you from the wrath of God to come. I mean, if Lottie is playing in the street, which we try not to let her do, but if Lottie's in front of our house playing in the street, and over the hill of Ayers Drive comes this speeding truck. And Mr. Joe, our 80-something-year-old neighbor, sees the truck and sees Lottie and flings himself into the road, pushing Lottie to her salvation. And he's smacked by that truck. And I run out, and Mr. Joe, he's there. He's scrambled up. He's scarred up. He's beat up. He's still breathing. And we get him some help, and... He's nursed back to health. And then Lottie goes to him and says, Mr. Joe, 
would you come play tea party with me? And Mr. Joe says, honey, I would love to come and play tea party with you. Okay, will you come tomorrow? I'll come tomorrow. If that night when I'm putting Lottie to bed, she said, Daddy, I, I'm just not sure. What are you not sure about, baby? I, I'm, I'm just not sure. I'm not sure that Mr. Joe's really going to come play tea party with me. Why would you doubt the word that Mr. Joe gave you? Well, because, Daddy, I mean, he's a busy man. He's got a lot going on. He probably doesn't even really want to come. I don't even know if he really loves me that much. I would look at her and say, Honey, just a few days ago, he pushed you to your salvation and risked giving his own life for you. How could you question that he wants to love you enough to play tea party with you? This is what Paul's doing. He's saying, more than just the fact that he justified you, more than that, surely... He's going to deliver you. I mean, you think he would overcome the weight of your sin just to let you go into an eternal damnation? That's illogical. That makes no sense. The greatest work has been done, Paul's saying. Surely the lesser work of full deliverance will be done. Surely. So it's not just a past tense thing that he's talking about here. He's talking about a present tense thing and a future thing, mainly a future here in verse 9. That's the type of argument we're going to trace throughout the letter, but specifically in this passage. You know, I noted this week that six times in these verses, Paul, in the verses of chapter 5, Paul uses the phrase more than or much more so. Verse 3, look what he says in verse 3. He says, not only that, that's the same phrase, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And then we look in verse, uh, verse 9, and he says, since therefore we have now been justified by the much more shall we be saved. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. See, he's doing the same thing there. And then in verse 15, on down, we're going to get there in a couple of weeks. In verse 15 he says, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And then in verse 17 he does it again, for if... Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through all, through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace. So he uses this line of arguing all through chapter 5. Much more, more than that, he says. This is an escalation of reality. It's what Paul's doing. He's escalating the reality from more to less. In other words, from difficult to obvious. How could God ever overcome our sin against God? How could God ever overcome our status as an enemy? How could God ever overcome our ungodliness? He did it on the cross. Logically then, Paul would say, he will save you at the end. How would he ever revoke it? The greatest work has already been done. It's finished. It's complete. The eschatological reality, which just means the last things Reality of being rescued from the coming wrath of God in the day of judgment is the great hope of the new covenant. We are not going to suffer the judgment of God against us because our great Savior has suffered our judgment for us. So we, we 
also we are reconciled to God by the death of Christ while we are his enemies and he has enmity against us. We are reconciled to him while we're his enemies and he has enmity toward us. Verse 10. These are parallel verses. They're teaching the same truth. They're teaching the same truth. But they're not redundant. It's not so much that they're parallel in the sense they're exactly the same. No, they're, they're contrasted. Uh, excuse me. They're, they're parallel in the sense that they're, they're, he's furthering the argument. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. It's a very controversial statement to say that God is our enemy because we'd rather not believe that God was ever at war with us. But the reality is that the Bible from beginning to end is filled with the fact that he, God, is at war with us. Have you ever stopped and thought about that awesome thought? God is at war with us. I used the analogy not uh, long back of Corey and Hudson and the difference, the differential between a dad and a little boy. But that gap's not nearly enough. It would be like the United States military force arraying itself against me. Yeah, like all the branches of the military and all of their power and strength. The commanding officer and the President of the United States went on stage and said, we have one enemy, his name is Carlton Weathers, and we swear to bring him down. You would say, uh, I don't know what you did, but you're not getting out of it, right? <laughs> but church, the United States government isn't so much as a sprinkle in comparison to God. If you would fear the might of the United States government against you, surely you understand the gravity of the eternal God of heaven saying, I am angry at you. We don't like it, but it's there. It's there all the way through the Bible. Adam was exiled from the garden because of his sin and his rebellion against God and forbidden by God to re-enter that place. God placed there at the east side of the garden a symbol of war. Not a symbol of peace. He didn't, he didn't put a nice grandma type there to say, Now, honey, I know you want to go back to the tree of life, but we can't do that right now. No, he put an angel with a flaming sword to bar the entrance of Adam and Eve to the garden. Why? Because he was angry at their sin. The world, a few generations later, was totally destroyed by the flood. Why? Because God was at war with the sinful folks that did evil always in his sight. Nothing compares to what we read in Revelation 14, 9 through 11, though. Listen to these words. And another angel, a third, called them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on its forehead, his forehead, or on his hand, 
he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented. The person who takes the mark of the beast will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of his name. The Bible is filled from beginning to end with a frightening message that God is angry and he is at war with all who are at war with him. Liberals, so-called Christians, hate this fact. And they think that they rescue God from it by saying less than this. But may I tell you, when you say less than the fact that God hates sinners, you fail to preach a true gospel. When you take away the fact that God is at war with sinners, you make it less than when Christ dies. The question could logically be asked, if it's less than full, unadulterated wrath against sinners, why would God crush his own son to remedy the problem? You cannot have a saved man's heaven without a sinner's hell. Last week we talked about the passage in 6 through 8 about how the poor man who had received at the beginning of his life a benefactor who came in and paid for everything, his food, his lodging, gave him all he could ever dream of, college education, and moved him on through life all the way down through time. And then this poor man, the benefactor relationship, the poor man comes before a judge, guilty of crimes that he cannot pay for, except by giving away his own life. And what did I say the benefactor did? He showed up at court and told the judge, he's guilty and I will die. Man, what a miraculous thing if the benefactor, the good man in our previous verses, the good man would die for sinners. What a glorious thing. We could imagine the poor man dying for the benefactor, but who could ever imagine the good man dying for the sinner? That's what Paul told us to believe last week. But more than that, more than that, the poor man is guilty of murdering the benefactor's family. He didn't commit a crime out there in the world somewhere. And the benefactor thought, well, I've lived a good life. I've helped him this far. I'll just help him a little farther. No, the poor man went into the benefactor's home and raped and pillaged and murdered his family and stood guilty. And the benefactor stepped up and said, I, he's guilty and I will pay. That's what Jesus did for us. More than that, while you were his enemies, Christ died for you. When you lessen the fact that you were an enemy with God with saying, well, it's trivial things like mistakes and I should have done better and I'll try harder, you minimize the gospel 
that has been presented to us in the Word of God. And when you minimize the anger of God against your sin, you minimize what the benefactor has done for us. He has stepped in our place and been condemned that we might be set free, church. That we might be set free. That we might be forgiven. That we might be declared righteous in the sight of God. And all analogies break down. That one does. It breaks down because I know you're sitting there saying, well, the judge in this situation is God. Exactly. So I won't try to strain the analogy. I'll just tell you the truth. The judge who condemned you to death before you ever sinned and became his enemy and before he was your enemy in your sins had already, before the foundation of the world, covenanted with his son and his son with the father and the spirit with both son and father to save you from your crime. See, it's not like the judge is being twisted into forgiving. The judge gladly forgives because he's a father. Because he's a father. And the son isn't made by the Father to bear the wrath, the Son willingly, joyfully runs into the sacrificial position and is slaughtered for you. Paul says in verse 10 that if while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us, reconciling us to God, then surely we'll be saved by the abundance of life we have in him. See, Paul goes on from forgiveness of sins. He goes on from that. In verse 10, he says, you weren't just forgiven, you were made a child of God. You were reconciled. You see the word reconciled? Two parties at war with one another have been brought to peace through Jesus Christ. God the Father is now at peace with you so much that he has brought you to himself through his Son as part of his eternal family. Our reality has been transformed by the death of Christ so that we, are not, only, we not only are not God's enemies any longer, but instead we are in his family. The parallel passage to our passage, Romans 5, 1 through 11, is just a couple pages over in Romans 8, 31 through 39. They're parallel passages. They bracket the whole section Five, six, seven, eight. He starts out by saying, We have peace with God. We rejoice in hope that will not put us to shame. We have been reconciled, Paul says, by Christ. Paul opens a section of Romans in chapter 5, reasoning that the greatest reality has already been accomplished and we have peace with God. And he closes this section of the letter in chapter 8 with the same hope that we can never be separated from God because we are in Christ. Listen to these most famous words. I trust you will know these words for sure. What then shall we say in verse 31 to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it? Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, there it is, who has raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for 
us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? He covered that in Romans 5. Or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. There's the love of chapter 5. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's the reconciliation which has been given to us by His own Son. So we see in these two verses the parallel truth that we have been saved by God while we were His enemies by the death of His Son. And if that be the case then we will have absolute confidence that God will continue to save us from the eternity. But let me pause right here in verse 11, before we get to verse 11. Let me just pause and ask you something. Grace Fellowship members, those who are with us that are Christians, this question is for you. If you're not a Christian, you really need to cling on to what I just finished saying. That you are an enemy of God and God is your sworn enemy. And you need Christ. And you need Christ and nothing else that you might be reconciled to him. But Christians, this has been a fairly easy sermon for us because it's like, yes, yes, and more yes. You know? So let me put you under a little squirm moment. Christian, when you sin... And if you say you don't sin, then you're not a Christian, according to 1 John. When you sin, how do you think God sees you at the moment of your sin? You think he sees you as a sinner? Do you think he sees you as an enemy? Do you think he's ashamed of you? And you think he just sits there with arms crossed behind the bench of judgment? Teeth gritted. Mm. What a failure. Pfft. Disgusting. You see, a lot of us have stopped going to God about our sins because we live like we're still enemies. Of God. You stop confessing your sins that He might cleanse you of all unrighteousness because you think He's disappointed with you and He's angry with you and He's disgusted by you. Nothing could be further from the truth, Christian. When you sin, the smile of his good pleasure is upon you because he sees you in Jesus Christ. And so all shame has been removed. And all guilt has been done away with. And all penalty and wrath has been consumed in the flesh of his son. And he sits arms open saying, come to me. All of you come to me. And I will give you rest. 
I will give you peace. I will forgive you of your sin again. He is still absolutely for you when you sin, Christian. He can never be anything but for you. He is not your judge any longer. He is your Father in heaven. He is not your sworn enemy any longer. He is your Father who loves you and has given Himself for you. And for Him to deny that in the moment of your sin is for Him to deny Himself. It's impossible. Some of us think we're going to get holier by being afraid of God. All you'll get with that is a trip down sorrow lane. Because your fear, wrongly, of the enmity that used to exist between you and God, but that He has dealt with in His Son, is a spit in His face. Paul would say, if He saved you at the cross, saving you now is nothing. You don't get sanctified by being afraid of your father and hiding in the corner. You get sanctified by knowing you're a sinner and running to his lap that you might receive the gift of himself from him. When you sin, your first reflex should be, i got to go tell my dad. Some of you are not progressing in your faith. Because you've stopped believing the gospel and started reclaiming your righteousness in your own works. And if that's the case, you need to be afraid you're not a Christian. At all. If you want to be afraid of something, if you started rebuilding the monument to yourself called works, it means either you have an aberrant understanding of the gospel and need to be brought along to maturity, or you don't have the gospel. Jesus isn't interested in you improving yourself. If that was all it was about, he would have left you a manual and said, go do it. But he left you a love letter in the cross that said, you can't do it, I did. So come to me, all you sinners, and rest. And I will take your burdens and give you my burdens, which are light. Why? Because we have a relationship with him. It's like walking with your friend in the mountains. It may be rugged, but man, I'm with my, I'm with my best buddy. I'm with my friend who's closer than a brother. Some of you have wandered away into this false belief and this false teaching of some piety that exists outside of Jesus. Piety exists only in Jesus. And so run to him when you sin. Not from him, to him. Paul says, listen, listen, if while you were his enemies... He reconciled you to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall he save us by his life. I have come, Jesus said, that they may have life. And what? That life more abundant. Picking up the dead letters of the law and live by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. We're going to get there in verse chapter 8. That's a sermon for another day. <clears throat> but I often hear people saying things that worry me so much because it sounds so much like the Pharisees. No church is. The religion of the Pharisees is dead. 
It is whitewashed tombs. They did nothing but try to fix themselves. And Jesus cursed them. And what he offered you was his life. Live with him. Stop running from him. And we come to verse 11. And you think that was good. Finally, Paul says, we rejoice in the gift of salvation, which is the gift of God himself. The gift of salvation is not just justification, which is our legal standing. It's not just reconciliation, which is our relationship with God in Christ. But the reality is that we have received God himself as a gift in the gospel. Paul says in verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God. We exult in God. We celebrate in God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. More than that, we also exult in God. This is another of our more than statements. This one is tying up all the teaching of this great paragraph. In verse 2, Paul tells us that we exult in the hope of the glory of God. In verse 3, he tells us, more than that, we exult in our suffering. But the greatest rejoicing is reserved for verse 11, where he says, we exult in God. We exult in hope of glory. We exult in the current sufferings that we face. But more than that, Christian, we rejoice, celebrate, exult in our God. That's what we do. That's what salvation is. It's the greatest gift ever given because God has given us himself. God didn't see a problem and find a solution. God saw the problem and he was and is and forever will be the solution. The Bible is not filled with go do betters. The Bible is the best has already been done. The Bible is not a textbook or a rule book of how to get closer to God. The Bible is the declaration through the redemptive story that God has gotten near to you. The Word became flesh and He tabernacled with you. He pitched His tent near you. The Word became flesh and dwelt among you and we beheld His glory. There it is, the hope of glory. Glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christian, listen to me. We don't rejoice because the Father gave us some good things. We rejoice because our Father gave us Himself in His Son. How do we rejoice then? Well, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom we have reconciliation. God did not simply forgive our sin. He did not simply call a truce between us and him in this war. But he went so far as to reconcile us into his family and give us a seat at the table of fellowship for eternity. It would have been more than we could have ever hoped for had he said, I cancel your debt. It would have been more than we could have ever hoped for if by canceling our debt he said, you can call yourself in this world my son, but don't come near me again. It's just cost me. It's too much pain. 
There's trauma in this whole thing for me. I have had to die for you. So, I forgive you. Your debt's clean. And you can take my ring of signet and go into the world. You're a son. But don't come near me. I can't bear to look at you. But listen, our God forgave our debt. Our God gave us his name and called us his sons. And then he said, I want to be with you every day. Come sit with me at the table and feast. Come sit with me and feast on my son forevermore. We will sing in the house of Zion. We will rejoice throughout the halls of eternity because God did not keep himself from us. He came near to us. Listen to the words of Paul. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ our Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Listen to what he tells the Corinthians. For God, for God, the Father, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Creation. Let light shine out of darkness. Has shown in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by, by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we've been reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than even that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation and this eternal vision this eternal idea this eternal reality will come to pass when our Savior comes and as as John says in his letter when he comes he will look at us he will look at the church gathered at his throne and see himself in us Paul says it in Colossians chapter 3 that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Who we are is hid in him. And when he comes again, then who we really are will appear with him. Why? Because we will be made into his image, church. All of eternity will be filled with the celebration of the little Christians, the little Christs who are celebrating Christ forever and the glory of God the Father. How do we see this in our world? So broken, so marred by sin, how do we see it? Well, one way we see it, we're about to do together. Pastor Corey's going to come up in just a moment. He's going to close our time together with you responding to this word by coming to this table. How can we be sure that we will celebrate at the table of God for all of eternity? Because he has given us a table in this moment to celebrate the future now and proclaim him 
until he comes. That's what we're about to do, church. If you, if you are not in Christ, then you only have one thing to do, and that's to come to him. I make no bones about the fact that if you stay outside of him, you do not come to him, you resist him, and you die in your sin, you will be in Revelation 14, torment forever. And the smoke that rises from that place will be into the presence of the Lamb, and it will be a sweet fragrance of the eternal goodness of God that he did not accept sinners except through himself. So if you are outside of Christ, your only thing to do is to come to him by faith. Right now, right where you are. And if you are in Christ, then your response is to come to this table and eat. And that's what we're going to do. Corey's going to lead us in that. I want to pray for us as he comes. Father, we 